Welcome to the podcast at DC, hosted by The Lab at DC. The Lab is an applied scientific team in the executive office of the mayor for the District of Columbia. We use science to learn what works for Washingtonians. I'm your host, Sam Quinney. What's the most important factor in a successful school? And when we're renovating or building a new school, what do we care about the most? Most educators and parents will tell you it's student achievement. In 2018, D.C. Public Schools commissioned Perkins Eastman Research to study the effects of school modernization on student performance. Today, we'll hear from the researchers at Perkins Eastman who spearheaded the study, along with the chief operating officer of DCPS. They'll tell us about what they learned about the potential impacts of school modernization. Let's start out. Can you all introduce yourself and where you're coming from? I'm Heather Howergy, Sustainability Specialist with Perkins Eastman. Emily Shimaleski, I'm a senior design researcher with Perkins Eastman. I'm Sean O'Donnell. I lead the school design practice for Perkins Eastman. I'm Patrick Davis, the chief operating officer for DC Public Schools. Well, Emily, Heather, Sean, and Patrick, welcome to the podcast at DC. We are very happy to have you join us today. Sean, would you be able to give us an overview of what Perkins Eastman does and give us some background of your involvement in schools? Well, Perkins Eastman is a global architectural practice, and we do a lot of different things. So we have offices around the world. We do everything from waterfronts like the wharf down here on the shore of D.C., all the way through healthcare, hospitals, senior living. However, in my role, I lead the school design practice. So we have schools that we've been working in D.C. since 2003 designing schools here. So we've had a great opportunity to, I think, really impact the education of a lot of students you know, over time here in D.C. But likewise, we're working nationally and internationally as well. So we have nine offices that are engaged in school design right now. And why that's important, I think, is because we've built a community of people talking about a lot of the issues going on in school design. And because they're in different places, they're seeing different trends and different things that can inspire work locally here as well. Patrick, would you be able to say a little bit more about your role in DC public schools and kind of how you got there? Sure. So I oversee sort of all operational aspects of running the school, you know, making sure that the kids have the buildings and supplies that they need to be successful. Prior to moving into that role, I oversaw the facilities division at DCPS, which is how I got introduced to the team here. I oversaw the modernization program, which is a rather large school construction program to make sure our school buildings are meeting 21st century standards. And prior to that, I work for Baltimore City School, so I've worked in the education space for quite a while now. And Patrick, would you say just a little bit of the broad view of school modernization in D.C., kind of where we were and what D.C. public schools is shooting for in the long run? Sure. So it predates me a little bit, but going back to the early 2000s, we were like many cities across the country where our school buildings had not been updated since they were originally built, whether in the 50s, even earlier sometimes. So the city, both the executive and the council and the community, collectively thought that updating our school buildings was a huge priority. So since the early 2000s, the district has invested over $4 billion into school construction. That is a huge undertaking. We are very fortunate to do that. And we've certainly ramped up those efforts in the past number of years so we spend between three to $400 million a year, and we open roughly four to five modernized schools every year. We get to work with great architects like Sean and other folks in the city to design our buildings. 
But it's really been a collective effort from the community, from the executive, legislative, and then the architecture world to really move our buildings to the 21st century. One of the things we'll talk about in the study is it's really making a huge impact on kids, which is why I have my job. <laughs> it's really important to me that we're giving kids and staff really the spaces that they need to grow and thrive. And as a former middle school teacher who has taught in a parka, I can certainly relate to the more than inconvenience that something as severe as, you know, the very low end of school quality or school construction can have. But when you're thinking about schools to modernize and you're listening to the community, you're listening to the various stakeholders, what are the key things that you're trying to accomplish in that for the school and for the community? Well, the first thing for us is we're working all over the city. We work in all eight wards. We work for all almost 50,000 kids at DCPS and having equitable sort of playing field is sort of our starting point. So a few years ago, we developed a core set of program principles that turn into specifications that we give to design teams. That doesn't mean we're creating cookie cutter schools or designs. In fact, quite the opposite. In fact, I wouldn't work here if we were doing that. There's many schools across the country and surrounding states where they have prototype designs saying, you know, pretty much every school looks the same. You can walk into any one of our buildings and they all look different. And while we start with this core baseline program that is uniform, we do figure out with the community at our side what makes each school different. And then we work with great teams like Perkins Eastman and other architecture firms in the city to make sure that vision of what the community thinks their school is and what we think the school is turns into a very unique space that encourages learning, supports whatever pedagogy is going on that individual school. We give schools a lot of autonomy to develop what program is right for them, and we shape the design around that. So while the spaces may have the same square footage and configurations, they're designed in very different ways based on the school instructional model. At the end of the day, we want to make sure that every kid has the spaces that they need and the environment that supports their learning. So we're not going to sacrifice that, but whatever we do, we do try to make them as different as possible and align with what each individual school is, but on an equitable way. Let's go into a little bit more detail on that process, because I think like you could be your average taxpayer looking at a school and saying like, well, why is that taking so long? Or why aren't they doing that school? Or Gosh, when they redid it, I think it kind of looks a little ugly now. Let's take everyone into more of the details of the process that DC Public Schools goes into when they're approaching a modernization. Sure. Well, first off, we have no ugly schools. <laughs> <laughs> but starting from even budget demo, these projects take years and years and years. The first thing that we do is actually work with the mayor's office to develop a six-year capital plan. So within that, we identify which schools need to be modernized. We actually have, through legislation, a structured process we have to follow, which will determine which schools get to go when. By 2025, we'll have addressed every single school. So the first thing is sequencing them, and then we develop internal budgets to estimate how much each project is going to cost. So we look at things like 10-year enrollment projections, which would then tell us how many kids we expect to be in the building in 10 years. Once we have that, we develop a program. So we say we have a school of 400 kids. We need this many classrooms. They need to be this big, which gives us a square footage number. So say you need 80,000 square feet in 2025 for the school of 400 kids. We look at, okay, they're at a starting point of 60,000 square feet. The building's actually pretty usable. So we look at a renovation cost of 60,000 square feet. We apply that over a multiplier. Then we realize, okay, well, we need now 20,000 square foot addition. So we then look at, what is actual new construction costs, which are different. And then we sort of bring that all together as one cohesive estimate per project. The other thing we've done over the past three years, once we get the sort of sequencing done, 
is measure how long a project is going to take. We've moved from historically rushing, getting as many projects as done as we could, to a more traditional schedule for a variety of reasons. It helps us with cost control. It helps us with quality control. We've moved to a one year of design and then two full years of construction. We used to do a lot of our work over the summers, or we used to do rush projects over a year because we wanted to get a lot done. But honestly, we were seeing cost increases due to overtime. We weren't always seeing the best quality because work was being rushed. So working with the mayor, we were able to sort of slow down the schedule a little bit and be a little more thoughtful about how we approach each project. So all in all, we start with a starting point of each project is going to take one year to design and then two years to construct. Well, let's hear from the architects then. Anyone, please jump in. Just where the process starts for you and what you think of when you get, obviously, some sets of requirements by someone like Patrick, and how do you transform that into something that's actually going to be an actual structure that people are going to be able to experience and enjoy? Sure. Maybe I can start, and then Heather and Emily can jump in. Well, it starts with, again, there are certain standards that the district has, but I think the exploration of all these issues that Patrick was just talking about is is part and parcel of the most important part of the process. We like to say we use a three-step process, so it's creative analysis, options, and then a preferred option is selected out of that process. The creative analysis part, and the reason we call it creative is One, it's the most fun. It's the most strategic part. It's where you're learning everything about all the issues that you need to be designing against. And you can think of design as problem solving, right? So what you're trying to do is define the problem, you know, in this first phase. So for us, it takes a while to do that. You know, we're looking at everything from the climate, you know, the context, you know, what kinds of buildings do we have surrounding us? How tall are they? What's in them? Are they industrial? Are they residential? What's the shape of the site? Does it have a lot of topography on it? We start to look at the culture of the school. What is the program that they're delivering in there? You know, what is the sort of culture and community that they're trying to build within the school, the relationships that they're trying to foster? So, you know, it's just a whole series of explorations, you know, from our observations to talking to anybody that will talk to us at that point in time. Because as Patrick's illustrating, one of my first observations of working here in the district was that, you know, I've done several elementary schools. Every one of them is radically different than the others in design, but the design is responding to a very, very different culture and community. So it's a real pleasure to be able to do that. I totally agree with Patrick that, you know, if we were just creating the same box over and over again, you know, it'd be boring almost instantly. (laughs) But DC doesn't allow for that even though, because most of what's happening here is there's this incredible array of historic schools, many of which were built you know, in the early 20th century, and they're fabulous buildings. And part of what we've been challenged to do is bring them into the 21st century, but still celebrate the beautiful civic architecture that those buildings had. So every one of those is different, and it drives a very different solution around it. You know, so it's a kind of complicated mix, but it's what makes it fun. Yeah, and one of the things that I often hear from people when they either visit a D.C. public school for an event within D.C. government or if they're parents looking at schools is that there's often some, say, dramatic architectural features of them that you maybe wouldn't expect in a school. What goes into that consideration of like something that's a little bit more attention getting in a school than you might normally think if you were just doing a box 
<laughs> There's a couple of things. One, if you look back at those historic buildings, they were civic architecture. They were manifesting that something important is happening under the roof here. Even if you never stepped inside the building, if you were to go to Cardozo or Eastern or you know all these classic Gothic and Georgian buildings, you know of that generation, they represented that this is the value of education to the city, and it's important that we represent that. So I think the new generation of architecture is trying to do that in many ways. But it's also about placemaking and creating great places for learning. And some of the buildings of the 60s and 70s had, and this is a gross generalization, but they sort of forgot about that. You know, you walked into them, you were standing in a corridor, you had no idea what was going on in the building, and you, you feel like you didn't arrive anywhere, right? So places in front of the building, places inside of the building generate sort of excitement and a sense of community becomes really powerful. And the older buildings did that well quite often. And now we're hoping that the new generation of buildings will do that. And they'll last just as long, we hope, and people will cherish them just as long as those buildings from the 20s and 30s. I think to add to that, what's interesting, too, is that these moves, these design moves that are these special moments aren't just there to create a response. And they do, but there is such a value on the cost per square footage and there is such an attention to using funds wisely that they are purposed. And so it's not just you walk into a space and you're like, wow, that's amazing. It's, wow, this is amazing. And there's a welcoming thing or it's a space where the whole student body can gather or there's something about it that it's more than just a design move and it's intentional and it's smart, both for the use of the building, but also the use of the resources that are going into that building. And then obviously there's the design aspects of it, but there's a lot of other things that you're thinking about in terms of what goes into the building. And I was wondering, Heather, if you might be able to say a little bit more about sustainability and how you think of bringing things into the 21st century from buildings that might have even existed in the 19th century and how you think of that from a sustainability perspective. There's been an interesting trajectory between some original school buildings that were created and then over the generations as we got access to heating and cooling, air conditioning, and access to electric lighting, things shifted and sometimes in a negative direction. So we moved to windowless classrooms or more kind of inward-facing school buildings because windows were seen as a distraction. We didn't need the windows for daylight anymore. We could rely on electric lighting and sometimes we shut down windows and didn't allow for proper ventilation and space because we had air conditioning. And so that period created some unfortunate building stock. And now we're starting to kind of come back around and realize that daylight is important, windows are important, ventilation, air quality, all of these things do have an impact on learning. We need to provide more quality spaces. So that's where the 21st century is kind of coming to at this stage. And every building that we're designing in this day and age, we're factoring all of that in. So it benefits us from a sustainability perspective because we're reducing our resource consumption. We don't need as much lighting. We don't need as much air conditioning or heating because we're able to use passive strategies that are given to us from the sun and from outside resources. So all of this goes together to reduce our energy consumption, but also create a higher performing learning environment. Mm -hmm. well, let's continue on that. So like Patrick, you mentioned 
300 to 400 million dollars per year being invested in these things and you know we spend a lot of our time in the lab at DC wondering about the cost of a letter versus another that's you know 50 cents if you could count printing sometimes how did you get to the idea that we need to really evaluate this like how did we get to the point where you were able to take a closer look at what we're getting for this investment we also wonder about envelopes and oh it's all important yeah. <laughs> I think we've always just moved on to the next batch of projects. One of the downsides of having just continual money coming in, there's always work that comes with that. Mm -hmm. And I think we always just look forward to the next batch of projects. And I don't know if we have done a good job about being intentional, of going back and evaluating what worked well, what didn't on the projects we've done. So Sean and I had a cup of coffee once and sort of came up with the idea of, hey, how do we actually do that. So we're making more informed decisions as we move forward. That's not to say the buildings we've done in the past are not good. They're great. I mean, they're amazing buildings, but there's even little things in there that we need to evaluate. Are they effective? Are they impacting kids? Are they the right financial decision? I mean, we can't make those decisions unless we go back and really evaluate what's been done. So we are trying to be a little more intentional about that to make sure that the money that we're getting, we're very fortunate to get that. And we don't take that lightly. So we want to make sure that the money that we're investing, we're able to back up every dollar that we put in the building to know that there's actually data behind decisions that we're making. Because it is taxpayer money, we need to be responsible with it. And we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we're not learning from the work that we've done. Like I said, we've done great things, and we, we always hear the buildings are great. We've actually never put numbers to it until we started doing some additional work with Perkins Eastman and folks. And would you give a summary of, from your perspective, what are the numbers that you want to see affected by a school modernization in an ideal scenario? What are you working towards? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of things that make a great school. The biggest thing, I think for me, it sounds really sort of simple to boil down to this, but our kids happy to be in the building? Are teachers happy to be in the building? You know, happiness is a huge thing. Are we getting kids into the school? Are they inspired to be there? Do they feel like they have the spaces to learn? Do teachers feel like they have the resources? Is there an environment that they can actually teach in? You mentioned your parka. No one should have to wear a parka to teach. The sad reality, that's sort of what happens across the country in a lot of urban jurisdictions. So how do we get to a point where we're not doing that? But how do we measure how that's actually making folks feel in the building? And then there's other things we can measure in terms of improving attendance rate. Working with the Deputy Mayor for Education's office, we're really pushing... You know, every day counts. You know, you go to school and you learn something every day. Does a new building inspire you to get to school more? If it does even 1%, that's worth it to me. That means kids are learning a whole lot more. And that just has a ripple effect as they grow. I think it's easy for us to get inspired by the work that we do. We deal with a lot, but at the end of the day, we're building schools for kids. And that's a pretty easy thing to get up and, and do. But how do we actually measure it so we're creating the best environment for those kids? That's where we want to get. I don't know if we're ever going to get perfect. We're not. But how do we at least reach for it and yeah. make sure we're getting there? What I think is the interesting question is how do you measure that sort of thing? When we're testing out letters or programs, when we're looking at things for the lab at DC, we're usually looking at stuff where, you know, there's... A lot of people involved in it. That could be a hundred, that could be thousands of people in it. And by having, you know, those larger numbers, we can get a better idea and more confidence in whatever we're measuring. But it's not like you're going to have tons and tons of schools to monetize all of the time or, you know, in a 
hermetically sealed lab setting kind of thing of saying like, okay, we're going to modernize. We have 270 schools in the district. We're going to modernize 135 of them right now. We're going to choose those randomly and we're going to be able to figure that out. Well, that would be billions of dollars and completely infeasible. So how did you all try and approach answering those questions of what is important for DC public schools and how do you actually put some numbers to that? Well, I think the first thing is really thinking about what are you studying? So Patrick's talking about happiness, but how would you operationalize happiness? What kinds of things are we hoping to do the goals? And then kind of reverse engineering of how would you measure goal achievement? So if you looked at it from a goals, strategies, outcomes approach, so what are the goals that this project undertook? What are the strategies that were employed? And then how can we measure the outcomes of the success of those strategies or maybe the lessons learned mm -hmm. from what was done? And so that's an approach that we are taking for all of our projects. But particularly for this study, it really allowed us to think about that and kind of what Patrick's saying, take a moment to reflect on what was done and what we can learn from that to inform others and to inform this district and across the country. So that really was the first step is really just thinking about if we were to undertake this, what are the kinds of things we wanted to focus on? And this particular study was focused on indoor environmental quality and performance. So then thinking about how do we measure those things, setting up the tools and the process in which to get good data so that we could analyze it and not have garbage in, garbage out, but have good data to work with. And then really engaging with the stakeholders. We've been building this research project for eight, nine years in terms of piloting these tools in this process and engaging more and more of the stakeholders in the environment. So in the past, we had really focused on the faculty because they were an easy group to approach. You can have an adult take a survey, but this was really an opportunity to bring it beyond just single case studies to look at a comparative group of schools and to engage at different levels. So involving elementary students and middle school students and developing tools to approach them in a way that we could then get good data from them and really understand their perspective of the space. And I think adding to that, there is sometimes a difference between perception of a space and the quality of the space and the actual measurement or performance of that space. So that's why we are able to layer the data together to look at both perception through the surveyed information of faculty and students of how they view the quality of their environment, but also the actual measured performance of those with air quality information, thermal comfort information, daylight, et cetera. And sometimes those comparisons are not equal, and that allows us to get some very interesting information around whether or not our acoustic standards are appropriate, for instance. So you all were surveying third graders and early elementary school students. How did that work? I mean, I assume it wasn't a big hefty stack of survey questions with a lot of caveats and things like that. And how do you approach that challenge? Thoughtfully. <laughs> <laughs> so it is easier with the older students. They are more capable of filling out a survey, having more attention to that. Also, just the understanding of the concepts of the kinds of things we were asking about. But we did have to be very specific in paring down to certain questions, you know, figuring out like we can't ask them 40 things. So if we could only ask five, what would those be and how would we do that? We added pictorial elements to our surveys. So it wasn't just a check the box exercise. We we had visual cues to help them pick which 
which box to complete. And then for the very young students, we didn't do a survey because we knew that wasn't appropriate for them. So we developed an exercise that they would do in class that was more about picking one topic. So let's not ask about all of them. Let's just let them talk about one. And then they filled out a way to pick one indoor environmental quality factor, one feeling about that, and then what that feeling expresses for them. So however they wanted to talk about that factor and that feeling to give us a sense of a whole idea. And so we were able to do content analysis on that to understand which indoor environmental quality factors were selected, what kinds of feelings, were they positive, were they negative, what kinds of pictures were they drawing that helped us understand perhaps what a survey check the box would have done that gives us an insight into that younger population. Can you give an example of what a student might have done? Sure. So one of the examples on the negative side would be a student filled out in terms of acoustics that it made them feel sad because they couldn't pay attention. That was the sentence that they filled out. And then they had a really adorable picture with like, you know, stick figures with hands over their ears and the teacher shouting, which read between the lines says an amazing thing about what's happening in their classroom. So it's like a snapshot of what they're experiencing in a day-to-day environment. On a positive side, we saw something around daylight and how it made them feel healthy because they were happy. And that was a really interesting thing because kind of thinking about social continuity in a class or mental health of a person, a very young person, and how the daylight might affect that. On that note, I thought one of the most interesting things about the younger level surveys was it was actually reflective of the broader data set. So more often than not, when they were talking about daylight, the young kids were talking about it in a positive light. And we found that throughout the other surveys, daylight was one of the best qualities that everyone was most satisfied with throughout the faculty level and the older student level as well. Whereas if they were talking about acoustics, more often than not, the young children had a negative association with it. And that was also reflected in our broader data set. So even at a young age, they're able to sense, you know, the positive or negative aspects of their environment around them. And so as many people who would be familiar with reading survey results or other self-reported measures, how do you check that against, you know, more objective measures of these things that you care about in terms of environmental quality? Well, I think that's what Heather was talking to in terms of the pairing of perceptual data through the occupant surveys, which is a quantitative measure of qualitative aspects, right? But being able to actually pair that with on-site measurements and seeing what people are reporting, what they're feeling, and what the tools and, you know, the on-site conditions are gives us a very interesting perspective of that whole picture. You've had some examples of the on-site measurements that you're doing briefly, like what sort of things you were measuring and why that matters, like CO2 and other things like that. I think that would be useful. Sure. Yeah, so we measure four different parameters of indoor environmental quality. We look at daylight, thermal comfort, acoustics, and air quality. So that gives us a sense of all these different parameters that actually can have an impact on a student's ability to perform and a teacher's ability to teach within those spaces. So for instance, when we're looking at air quality, we were measuring CO2 levels, which can be a measure of effectiveness of ventilation within the space. And there's been some interesting research done by Harvard that studied CO2 levels and cognitive function and found that as CO2 levels rose within a space, cognitive function took a direct decline. 
So clearly, we don't want high CO2 levels in a learning environment where we're going to reduce the cognitive function of our students. So that's one of the parameters that we studied. We studied it over a week-long period in all of the classrooms and tracked CO2 levels every 10 minutes throughout the entire day in those spaces. Another example that we studied was daylight. So we're able to take daylight measurements using a sensor, and we looked at both distribution of daylight throughout the floor plate and glare. So glare can create visual discomfort. So even if we're appropriately a daylighting space, there is such thing as overlighting it and causing glare issues that make it challenging for students to see the board or to see the test that's on their desk at that moment. So looking at these parameters more holistically and studying both the distribution and the glare allows us to get a better picture of how the daylight is actually doing in those spaces. And so those are some things that you can physically measure with precise instruments. But what about the things that Patrick was mentioning, like about the actual effects on students? So like he mentioned attendance. Did you all look into that as well as a possible outcome of this? Yes. So we looked at archival data. So that's data that already exists that is being collected perhaps by a third party. So in this case, DCPS, or also data that was publicly available. So we looked at things like student attendance rates, enrollment rates, boundary rates, which in the D.C. public school system is the option to choose which public school to attend. And so we were looking at how many were choosing to attend their local neighborhood school versus choosing something that was outside their immediate region. And then we were also looking at visits to the nurse. So we did have self-reported perceptions of health, but then also looking at how many times students were going to the nurse. We were looking at crime incidents in the blocks around the schools. So thinking about community engagement or eyes on the street or different factors that a school modernization may have on the greater community, things of that nature. So now we're trying to get to this answer of, okay, we have a lot of really diligent and thoughtful data collection on it. How do you then tie that in a way that gives a meaningful and believable answer to what is the effect of the school modernization of that? How did you all approach that and set it up? There was a lot of analysis done on that data because it was a lot of data. We had, you know, a lot of participants, nine different schools, different data sets, three different types of data sources of that nature. So we were looking at the data both within the buckets of occupant surveys, the on-site measurements, and the archival data, but then we were also looking at the relationships between them. We had a statistician brought onto the team to handle that heavy lifting of that data so that we can really look from a statistical standpoint how variable were correlated, controlling the different schools. You know, Patrick and Sean both talked about the value of the differences between the school. But from a research standpoint, we really need to normalize some of these things to understand if what we're seeing is a generalizable, reliable result, or if it was just this kind of standoff issue. And so through the statistician's work, we were really able to start seeing what findings that we thought were interesting were actually statistically relevant. And so there were things that we saw that were interesting, and you see the percentage, X percent higher satisfaction, and we're like, wow, that's amazing. And then statistically, it's not significant. So it's still great, but from a statistical standpoint and being able to reliably take this data and apply it in the future or in other districts is something that we were looking at and trying to get a really rigorous study to do that. When you're looking at the outcomes of it and you're trying to decide which schools to look at to answer this question of what's the effect of school modernization, how did you choose the schools to look at and which schools to compare them to? 
So to set up this study, we selected nine schools from various areas across the district. So we were looking at all the different wards and making sure that we had a good disparate connection between all the schools. So nine schools were selected. Five of them were modernized, recently modernized schools, and four of them were non-modernized, but are slated to be modernized in the near future per what Patrick was talking about. When we were picking the modernized schools, we wanted to make sure that a lot of the schools had the same sort of starting point in terms mm-hmm. of scope. Because of the history of the program, there has been a variation in terms of what approaches and what standards were put into the buildings. And so we were intentional about picking schools that have had a very similar sort of starting point in terms of program development, scope development. So they did sort of align with more of our recent projects so that when we we're comparing even between modernized schools, we know we're starting with sort of the same starting point. So all the modernized buildings were major renovations, not new construction, but they often had additions to them as well. So we kind of normalized the recently renovated buildings for that variable. And are those just totally different, that those schools are never going to be modernized? Or what's going to happen to those four schools that are in the comparison group? So all of our schools will be modernized. In fact, those are schools that we're actually starting design on either this year or in the coming years. So it's really important to us as we did this study We're actually developing baseline data at those schools as well. So once we're done modernizing those schools in a few years, we actually have a baseline set of data through this project that we can actually do some post-occupancy evaluation. So looking at the same cohort of kids that we either started in the old building, now they're in the new building, it'll just give another slice of it and different perspective on how to look at the data. Well, so why don't we talk a little bit about what you found? Sure. So overall, we found really positive results. There were differences between the modernized and non-modernized schools. We saw higher satisfaction levels at the modernized schools. We saw self-reporting of health, happiness, students feeling calm, pride in attending their schools. These were the things that increased from an occupant perception standpoint, from the indoor environmental quality factors. Sure. By every indoor environmental quality factor that we studied, we saw an improvement in the modernized schools. So we saw reduced CO2 levels in the spaces. We saw improved well-lit area versus underlit or overlit area from a daylight perspective. We saw improved thermal comfort, improved time within the comfort zone in the classroom environments, mitigating the need for a parka or (laughs) to be wearing flip-flops essentially in the winter. And... Acoustics, we saw a reduction in background noise levels and ambient noise levels within the spaces. So by every parameter studied, there was an improvement from an indoor environmental quality perspective. Would you say just maybe put some numbers on it or at least ballpark numbers on it so that... Yeah, so we saw an increase in modernized schools by 29% around faculty being satisfied with the acoustics in their classrooms. A 29% increase in satisfaction is great, but it was only from 10%. So we were meeting... 39% satisfaction in general in our modernized schools with acoustics. So that's a pretty low bar. So in general, that was the lowest of all the categories around satisfaction. And that's obviously a focus for us moving forward. From the measured results that we saw, we saw a reduction by 11% in background noise levels. That's due to the mechanical equipment and new smarter systems and ways of designing that to mitigate background noise levels. But as Patrick was saying, we really care about occupied noise levels. And when the students are in the classroom, what's happening? happening. So that's why we're moving forward with pursuing some enhanced acoustics and really trying to figure out how we can improve the standards to deal with project-based learning. 
And then from our standpoint, we're really happy with the results. But one of the things that we wanted to use this study for is to evaluate moving forward and how do we make more informed decisions. So Heather mentioned some of the acoustic results, which are great. We're improving. But just based on looking at the data, we're not where we want to be. We're seeing great results in an ambient setting when there's no one in the classroom. But we're still not seeing great results in an occupied setting when you compare modernized versus non-modernized school. So the current standards are actually set on a kind of an antiquated instructional model of a teacher just standing in front of the room and talking to a row of desks and students. That's not how we learn anymore. Classrooms are very dynamic and there's a lot of things going on. You can look at one table, there's a group project going on. The other side of the room, there's a student trying to read a book by himself. There's just a lot of things happening at the same time. So what we're seeing is because of that, the standards aren't matching instruction and we're meeting the standards to meet our lead requirements, but it's not doing enough to match what instruction is. So the classrooms are still too loud. So one of the things we were happy to do with Perkins Eastman on project in Ward 7, which they're currently designing is currently under construction, we actually took this report and said, hey, we want to do more and actually test that out a little bit. So in two of the rooms, we're going to be doing enhanced acoustic treatments in the classroom to measure if we invest a little bit more in these classrooms to improve the acoustics, is that a worthwhile investment? So if we're adding $10,000 to the project, are we actually going to see a measurable difference in terms of acoustics? And that way, when I'm asking for money and we're developing cost estimates, we can factor those factors in saying, yeah, if we spend 10000 more per room, whatever the dollar amount works out to be, it is actually a beneficial thing for the district to spend that money. Again, we want to be very thoughtful with the taxpayer money, make sure it's going to something that we know is going to make a difference. And what about the, we usually say administrative data, but you're saying for archival data, what are those sorts of outcomes that are already being collected by DCPS and what sort of results did we see on those? We did see correlations between things like improved performance in the buildings or improved satisfaction with relationships to some of the archival data we were looking at. So fewer nurse visits, better enrollment rates, better boundary rates, so people choosing their local school more, things of that nature. The limitation of the study, though, was that several of the schools that were involved were recently occupied. So they were occupied in the last year or so. And some of the performance indicators that we were looking at would take years to show up in the data. So we didn't have the backlog of data in which we could really explore and dive into that data and see the effect of these modernizations on those performance indicators. But it is something that that we've suggested, and I know Patrick is interested in looking at in the future, once we do have that backlog of data to go back and really understand how those strategies had outcomes and how those outcomes were being seen in those performance indicator data. So one of the performance indicators that we were looking at was attendance rates. And we saw an interesting correlation between if the environment was thermally comfortable, then students were more likely to have higher attendance rates. So that was an interesting correlation. Another one that we looked at was daylight and improved boundary rates. So as a school was better daylit, there was more likely a correlation between students choosing that local neighborhood school as opposed to going to a school in a different area. Area. And which outcomes would take a little bit more time to capture? All of them will take more time. So this is just preliminary and we're able to see some inklings of heading in the right direction. But eventually we would like to see more correlations and we believe there will be more correlations because we've seen such an increase in satisfaction. So that might take three to four years for us to start to see the results really increase in these categories. 
I think an example of one that would take time to see would be faculty retention. So obviously, you know, the amount of turnover that an individual school would have in a year. I mean, I'm sure there's instances where things happen and there's a lot of turnover, but often it's a slow trickle. But to see that slow trickle and how slow it is in one set of schools versus another would be something that could be looked at in the future. So obviously, probably everybody wants their school modernized, you know, as soon as possible, but you can't do it all at once. How does the schedule set for modernization? What factors do you take into consideration as you're planning out to get to every school being modernized by 2025? Yeah, we actually try to get the loud voice out of the equation. It's our job to work for every child in the district, and we actually try to take the politics out of that process. So a number of years ago, three years ago, we developed our own data-driven process to help identify when schools would be modernized. And the first thing we did was look at which schools had received literally no capital investment over the history of the school. There's little maintenance fixes here and there and and some improvements, but a full-scale project had not happened at these schools. So we started with those schools and we developed an algorithm that basically looked at a number of factors and looked like building condition assessments, enrollment trends, neighborhood demographic information, at-risk student population. So we looked at a number of different factors that led to a model that basically spit out a listing of schools in, in a ranked order. Then we factored in things like swing space availability. So when we're constructing a building, we can't do it most times with kids in the building. So there needs to be an available temporary location for those kids to swing to. So we looked at that. And then we also look at the amount of money we have per fiscal year. Since we have the list and identify which schools can go when, we slot that into the budget by fiscal year by looking at the underlying amount of money we have. So if we have $300 million to work within a fiscal year, we can't do more projects than that fits in there. So that sort of helps us sequence over the Mm six-year period. The modernization program has done a, a few different approaches in terms of how schools are modernized. So it started in the early 2000s with the Army Corps of Engineers leading the effort. And they did full modernizations, meaning they touched every space in the building, they touched every classroom, cafeteria, gym, corridor, bathroom. And then moving towards the 2008 to 2012, 13 range, the district approached it a little differently where we did what's called phase one modernizations. And even within that, there's a scale of sort of how much was invested. But those, in sort of the simplest terms, were touching the core academic spaces only. So as part of those projects, we modernized classrooms, but we may not have gotten to the cafeteria or the gym or the bathroom. So we focused on sort of the quote-unquote core academic spaces. That allowed us to do more projects and make sure we touch more schools quickly. Starting in the 2014-2015 timeframe, we moved back to sort of the full modernization approach where we're going to take the one year of design and two year construction. We're going to touch every system, every space in the building. So any project moving forward will receive that full modernization. So the plan of attack is to go to any school that has not received a modernization. So we'll do a full modernization at those schools. And then we're going to go back to those 35 schools that received a phase one approach where they had some part of their building touch, but not all of it. And then we'll do sort of the second phase to those projects. And there's actually a legislated process we have to follow that was introduced by Councilmember Grasso called the PACE Act, which identifies the criteria that'll go into a model that gives us an output of how schools are sequenced. So what's next for this line of inquiry? What is DCPS most interested in looking at or learning about going forward? So this is, as Sean mentioned, this is even just a stepping point for us. So we're committed to continue this work and continue the evaluation to make sure that we're making sound investments and sound design decisions for kids. 
you know, we have not designed the perfect building yet. I think we'd be lying if we said we have. We've done a lot of great things, but we want to learn from what's been good, what hasn't been good. So we're launching another study with Perkins East. We're in the final stages of formalizing what that is, but we're going to expand the scope with a neighboring jurisdiction to help expand the list of schools and even expand the geographic boundary of what we're able to do. So we're excited to do that. We're going to look at almost 40 schools to continue the IEQ work that the team has explained. We're also looking at other things about what impacts instruction. The environment is really important, but we're also looking at the space in the building. So if you think about a school that was built in the 1950s or before, the classrooms are 500 square feet, 600 square feet. It's really hard to have sort of a modern pedagogy in a room that small. So when we're thinking about comparing a modernized school, which is almost double the size of that or 40% bigger, how does that impact instruction? Do you have more space to do project-based learning? What are the limitations of, of some of the older buildings? You know, as we think about adjacencies, we think about path of time, path of travel, and time it takes to get to the cafeteria. Every minute in a school is important for wasting that by not being thoughtful about where the spaces are. We're not doing our jobs right. So we want to look at things like that. We also want to look at how it impacts the community. We're not unique. Schools in any sort of urban environment are often anchors for that community. We want to understand a little better about how our school buildings interact with the communities and how they interact with us. So as part of that larger study, we're going to try to look at all of that and really get some good data that we can put on fancy brochures, but also really help us make more informed decisions, which is really important to us. So we're committed to moving this work forward. Yeah, that's great because all of this doesn't really work if you do it one time and find out some of the results, unless you've nailed it from the beginning, which I don't know if anyone ever does. It's that repeated level of inquiry that really seems to move the needle. Well, Emily, Heather, Sean, and Patrick, Thank you so much for being on the podcast at DC, and thank you so much for this important work. Hey, listeners, a quick update since we recorded this episode. Shortly after we recorded, the American Institute of Architects College of Fellows awarded their 2019 Latrobe Prize to Sean O'Donnell from Perkins Eastman and his colleague Bruce Levin at Drexel University for their work studying the impacts of high-quality school buildings on educational outcomes. The prize funding will allow them to continue their research both in D.C. and Baltimore, and will also allow them to develop a set of design guidelines for architects and school districts. This funding means that D.C. public schools can continue the work you just heard about with Perkins Eastman and expand on it in the future. Congratulations. Thanks for listening to the podcast at DC, a production of The Lab at DC. Our producer is Nellie Moore, and our podcast intern is Tim Madden. We want to know what you think of the podcast at DC, and we want to hear your ideas for what topics we should be covering. Go to tinyurl.com slash the podcast at DC to take part in our listener survey. The link is also in the description of this episode. Your feedback will help us improve our content and production quality, and it'll also allow us to better serve district residents and improve evidence-based governance in DC. If you liked what you heard, visit our website at thelab.dc.gov, where you can sign up for our mailing list. You should also follow us on Twitter at thelab underscore DC. However you choose to connect with us, you can find more information on our work and stay updated on what we're doing. For more episodes of the podcast at DC, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Sam Quinney.